0: Folks, thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael, back with you on the pod after a week's absence. Michael Novak, how you doing, man?
1: Doing good. Doing good. I love your voice tonight.
0: Oh, well, well great. thank you. Yeah. I,
1: I believe you, it's the same voice. You gave
0: it a rest for a week. Oh. And it just it's, it's powerful. <laughs> oh, man. I, yeah, I think it's the same larynx that I've always had. So. <laughs> Tell us about the wilderness of North Carolina where you were last week.
1: Well, we saw something very unusual and that was leaves changing colors. Oh dear. Yes, it, it's it does happen in other parts of the country. You
0: mean they're they're not just they're not
1: just green or They're falling or off red the trees or, right now. Or brown. Yeah. brown.
0: <laughs> yes. It was beautiful. That's that's
1: the part of the country I grew up in. Yeah. It feels like you're heading into a rainforest after <sighs> spending some time in South Texas when mm-hmm. you go back to that part of the country.
0: Mm. Uh, did you guys get to do anything fun while you're there? You were there with a, a group of pastor friends, kind of a group for an of pastor retreat. friends
1: annual retreat, there to share, pray with each other, um, and uh, just enjoy time uh, away. Kind of plan for the upcoming year, and so uh, plan for sermon series for 2021 at Trinity Grace. And um, you know, we had a chance to go to Asheville and kind of spend time in that city of North Carolina. Um, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. kind of mountains all around. And, uh, and one of the friends that I have, his parents own a lake house, and they give it to us for the week. And so uh, it's a beautiful place uh, to just kind of relax and read and be with them.
0: Sure. So you say you plan sermon series. Yep. Can you give both of our listeners a teaser of yeah. what <laughs> might be coming next year? Well, we're going to start off
1: in January with a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Mm. Um, that's going to take us through Easter. Um, after Easter, we'll spend uh, six or seven weeks looking at the book of Philippians and Resurrection Joy. And then in the summer, we'll move into a series, a 10-week series on Ecclesiastes in mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Wow. And in the fall, we'll move into a gospel series on encounters with Jesus, just looking at Jesus and how he encounters different individuals in the gospels. Sure. Sure. So,
0: yeah, man, that Ecclesiastes one is going to be fun. I can't wait for that one. Me too. So, um, before we move on to our regularly scheduled program, it is time for everyone's favorite moment of the week, and that is your boost and bummer, Mister Novak.
1: Yes, Um, I will say. (laughs) I do want to say, based on uh, the the twenty twenty one schedule. it is set, but uh, how do I say it? What's the phrase? Um, it can change. Yeah. <laughs> so like, anyway, I'm sure nobody really cares that much. Um, but I just want to reserve the right to change things. In
0: Programming liberties. With yes, your, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, boost and bummer, though. Boost and yes. bummer. Um, my boost uh, would have to be um, lots of joy uh, that me and Rachel experienced in watching a new Apple TV show over the past few weeks <laughs> called Ted Lasso. Um, it's... Uh, a show about an American football coach that goes and coaches premier league soccer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he has no clue what he's doing. Um, but he goes and coaches, uh, a team. Um, I forgot what team was it. G you watched it recently, Richmond. Richmond. Uh, is that a real team? I know nothing about premier, not league. premier league. Okay. They're not in the premier league. Um, uh, but, but you've got to watch it. Ted Lasso. I love it because Ted Lasso as a character is amazing. He is completely hopeful, non-cynical. He's a great leader um, just in the way that he cares for and loves other people. And that's what I love about it.
0: Was this a spinoff? I remember a YouTube video when I was much younger about – it was this comedian, and he was he was going over to coach the Tottenham Hotspur. Yes, that's it. I mean, it's Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, and he's got a mustache. <laughs>
1: yes, and he 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 knows nothing about Premier League yeah. soccer. Uh, it's I, really. good. I remember
0: the scene where they're trying to teach him the teams, and they're, they're showing yes. logos, and they're like, "This one is," and he was trying to he was equating them to American football teams. Uh-huh. So like, this one's got a lot of money. They used to be really good, uh, but they haven't won in a long time. Dallas Cowboys. This one, nobody <laughs> likes them. Dallas Cowboys. Yes.
1: <laughs> and they use a lot of those lines from those commercials actually in the show. Yeah. And so um, they recycle them, but it's a, it's a great show. Yeah. If you have Apple TV or willing to get the week-long trial, uh, I'd recommend it. It's not suitable for kids, though. You should know that. There's some language. <laughs> Disclaimer. And, yeah.
0: Um, but it, it's great. Tell me your bummer, sir. Uh,
1: you know, I had a hard time coming up with a bummer, but Guillermo just got my mind turned, and now I have like 15 bummers. <laughs> um and so (laughs) um spend
0: five minutes at g's house i know that's not normally
1: the case but it all centers around the masters golf tournament that happened this past week
0: man between you talking about golf and g talking about soccer i yeah (laughs) i just can't relate
1: but you know it was kind of amazing to have the masters in november because normally it's in april um around easter time but we got to see some fall golf And uh, one of the things that uh, I didn't like about it, two things I didn't like is first, because the sun set earlier, they teed off earlier in the day. And so normally I look forward to Master Sunday where I come home from church and the leaders are just teeing off on the first tee. So you have like, you know, the sun setting at six, seven o'clock and the the leaders are coming in uh, towards dinner time. But by 1 o'clock this Sunday, the Masters was over. And oh. so you really had nothing to look forward to unless you recorded it or watched it on delay. Mm-hmm. Um, you already knew what had happened. So that was kind of a bummer.
0: Sure, sure. Well, um, sorry, your afternoon of golf watching was less than exciting.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: That's also known true. as an <laughs> afternoon of golf watching.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, that's funny because in North Carolina, the Masters had started. And one afternoon, I turned it on. And I fell asleep watching it. Of course you did. And all of my friends made fun of me. They're like, I've never seen that before.
0: (laughs) Do you also listen to NASCAR races on radio? (laughs) Because that seems to be about uh, about the same speed. Well, let's move on to the regularly scheduled programming for this evening, continuing in our um, overview of the Bible series. Um, Wrapping up the Old Testament tonight, we're going to be talking about the post-exilic books. Um, So this is going to be... Specifically the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Mm-hmm. And I've got to be honest, this, these are probably the three books of the Bible that I know the least about, probably because they're the three books of the Bible I probably read the least. Oh, yeah. Because they're usually at the tail end of a year long Bible reading plan and I haven't made it, but right. <laughs> so I've only gone through them a couple of times. So I just don't know very much uh, about these. So, um, I know that Ezra and Nehemiah are. Uh, at one point, we're one book and it, are, are essentially kind of telling the same story. So why don't you just kind of yep. give us overview?
1: Sure. Well, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther come right before in your Bible. If you're going to go find them, which is important, um, they're right before uh, Job and Psalms. And so you you'd flip. they're not in the prophets. A lot of folks would go to the prophets to look for these books. They're in the historical books, but they happen after the exile. Uh, So you've got to remember that in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, comes and takes Judah and Jerusalem into exile. And they're in exile, and Jeremiah prophesies that they'll be in exile for 70 years. So settle in, uh, bless the city, because if the city flourishes, you'll flourish, is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, I believe. Um, And after uh, about 50 years in exile... Um, What happens is Babylon falls to Persia, and a new king comes, and that king is named Cyrus. And Cyrus, after a year of being on the throne, issues a decree uh, in 538 uh, that allows uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people... Um, to go back to their ancestral land of Jerusalem and and Judah. And so what you see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is the exiles returning to Jerusalem, um, and they return to Jerusalem, and in many ways they return to a temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Uh, They return to uh, just uh, disjointed uh, people that no longer are following the Lord or following the ways of His covenant. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are really two books about uh, the Jewish people coming back to their homeland and putting things in order. Mm -hmm. And so in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you really have three main characters. You've got in the very first part of Ezra, a man named Zerubbabel, and he comes and what he does is he rebuilds the temple. Um, He rebuilds the temple because the temple that Solomon had built had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He rebuilds that. And then you've got, uh, in the latter part of the book of Ezra, Ezra himself coming, and he is more of a prophet and a priest-type figure, and he is coming to basically re-implement the Torah or the covenant rules for God's people and to build the community back up uh, as they worship the Lord uh, and follow His commandments. Um, And that's basically the two characters that you find in the book of Ezra. And then you fast forward to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra. He comes after Ezra, uh, but he comes with another wave of exiles, and what they do is they rebuild the city walls. Um, And so uh, the book of Nehemiah is all about them rebuilding the city wall um, against great opposition um, that comes their way from some of the local uh, officials that are living in Jerusalem. They don't want to see the wall rebuilt.
0: Wouldn't those local officials also be Israelites?
1: Well, uh, some of them would have been Israelites and others would have not been. Uh, And so uh, there was a mixture of people, which was also a problem because the exiles that returned found uh, themselves intermarrying. Mm. And that was one of the things that Ezra spoke against. If you read the last part of the book of Ezra, you'll notice that he spends a good portion of time um, basically – Prosecuting the idea, uh, or re- reintroducing the idea um, that God's people are not meant to intermarry mm-hmm. um, with those that are not, you know, part of the covenant community.
0: Sure, um, there's they're rebuilding this wall because there's some kind of uh, impending battle, isn't there? I'm trying to remember from the last time I've read this, but isn't there an army that's coming to because they don't like that this people is resettling its homeland? Well, trying to rebuild the wall,
1: I think they I I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think they're rebuilding the wall simply for security's sake. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, that's kind of what a city did. Um, And so um, obviously, they would have been concerned uh, about potential threats in the future. But I don't think there's any indication in the book, of Ezra and Nehemiah, that somebody's imminently coming. Yeah. But they do want to rebuild the wall um, for their own safety and security and just to establish their place um, like it had always been. And what you notice at the end of Nehemiah is there is a sense of spiritual renewal that happens. Uh, After the temple's built, after the Torah is kind of reinstituted by Ezra, after Nehemiah finishes the wall, what you see is the people confessing their sin out loud. Uh, You see kind of a covenant renewal taking place. You see them committing to following the Torah. Um, You see a great celebration happening um, among the folks Um, But the book ends on kind of a down note uh, where uh, the temple is neglected. Those that are serving at the temple aren't doing what they're supposed to be up to. Um, You see the Sabbath being uh, disobeyed. Folks aren't resting on the Lord's Day. Um, And you see um, other things kind of crumbling. Um, And that kind of ends the book of Nehemiah, which is the last um, historical book that recounts God's people as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of leaves you um, longing for more.
0: Sure. So this cycle of um, disobedience that we read about in Kings and Chronicles that is punished by God with the exile event continues to just be repeated even after the exile.
1: Yeah, I mean, and but the the th- yeah, that's right. The thing that the prophets would prophesy during the exile is there's going to come a time of renewal and restoration that happens. And so, what you see is Ezra and Nehemiah experience some of those prophecies coming to fulfillment. Um, they experience the renewal and the restoration of the temple, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, of uh, of the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, but you also get a sense that it's not as magnificent and as great as some of the prophets had foreseen. Mm-hmm. And so they get a small taste, but there's something better and bigger and grander um, that they are not yet experiencing, which really sets the stage um, for what's gonna come uh, in the new covenant with uh, with Christ as the mediator of that new covenant who comes and gives new hearts to his people, Um, and uh, and eventually at the end of the age when all people, all nations, all languages will come Mm -hmm. um, and worship at God's holy hill. Um, And so you get tastes of renewal, but it's definitely not complete and full and final renewal that that the Bible promises.
0: Let me me ask you a question that is a little bit um, elementary, I suppose, but something that I've always kind of tried to wrap my head around and, and not really gotten there. When we talk about uh, this people being exiled. Um, did Nebuchadnezzar literally load up everyone in Jerusalem in a caravan and and put them in Babylon? That's a great and question. Wh- are there enough houses in Babylon yep. to house an entire nation yep. of people that you're importing? <laughs>
1: yeah, in, in exile, not everyone went, uh, and so um, in fact, most of the poor. Uh, and most of those of lower kind of stat, social status would have stayed in Jerusalem uh, to basically tend the fields, to make sure that things were kept up and, um, and cared for. What, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar did, and you see this in the book of Daniel, which we're studying on Tuesday mornings, is he took the upper crust. Uh, he took the nobles uh, from Jerusalem. And that's the way that kings would have done it in that day and age, I believe, um, they would have taken uh, the most influential uh and retrained them in their own customs and culture um so that they could completely obliterate yeah. the old customs and cultures that the upper crust would have maintained. And so replace
0: them in their own homeland with their own nobility and, and
1: sure, uh, yeah, and like yeah, and, f- and and potentially Nebuchadnezzar would have sent nobility yeah. over that way. Um I believe that would have been the case, so- although I don't know. If yeah.
0: I'm not really way. sure, but that, that strikes me as maybe what the custom would be.
1: Sure. But I, that, that's just, co- that would be a common sense conjecture bias, I guess. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm certainly no historian, but I do
0: play a podcast host. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so then when people are returning to exile, is it, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm struggling with is when we talk about Nebuchadnezzar took like the nobles in the upper crust, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like a few dozen folks, but it, You get a sense that there's a lot more than that. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It would have been, uh, I don't know exactly how many. In fact, Nehemiah and Ezra spend a good portion of time um, talking about specific names, and it reads a lot like genealogy, a few chapters of each of those books. And so you get a sense that it was thousands, Mm -hmm. uh, tens of thousands. Um, uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands off the top of my head. I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, uh, you do get a sense that even when they were allowed to go back, many decided not to. Mm. And some actually stayed in the land of Babylon and Persia. Um, other, uh, groups of the Jews would have traveled down to Egypt, uh, during, uh, the time of Jerusalem's fall. Um, and this is really a, a moment in time where, uh, it's known as uh, Diaspora, where God's people would have been uh, flung to the ends of the earth, so to speak, um, never to return to the mm-hmm. homeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, I read uh, earlier today that Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, uh, recounted the fact that there are more Jews in kind of the nation uh, or the territory of former Persia in the first century A.D. than any other ethnicity. Mm. Uh, and so it just leads you to believe that even though the exiles were allowed to return by King Cyrus's edict, many decided not to, and they just continued to live in the territory that they were brought to uh, by Nebuchadnezzar.
0: Gotcha. So that's probably a good segue then to talk about Esther, because this is a book that takes place um, during or short, shortly after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it centers around some Jews that are living in is it Babylon it's some other place but there are Jews that have not returned yep. uh, to Jerusalem at this point or
1: the the nation that would be uh in charge would be Persia mm-hmm. um, and uh the uh, story takes place in a capital city known as Susa um and so it's an interesting story uh uh i believe it's about 12 chapters long um and it would definitely uh 10 chapters long, um, it would definitely be worthwhile reading. Some of the things that stand out about this particular story uh, of Esther is the thing that stands out the most is that the name God is used nowhere in the book. Mm. Uh, And so God is not mentioned once, um, which leads a lot of folks to wonder what in the world's going on. Should this even be in our Bible? Um, In fact, some uh, of the reformers, Martin Luther in particular, questioned whether or not the book of Esther deserved a place in the scriptures because of the fact that God was absent from its pages. But while he's absent kind of explicitly, he is not absent implicitly. In fact, I think that's the point of the whole book Mm. is the fact that God is working behind the scenes, uh, working through what we would might call coincidences or what, you know, the world might call coincidence is what we would call God's providence. Mm-hmm. Um, he's working all things out according to his plan. Um, and he uses the character of Esther and her uncle Mordecai to do it. And so basically what happens is the king uh, uh, in that day and age, um, uh, Esther was a part of uh, his, his, his harem. And. Um, and uh, he deposed of the queen in the first chapter because she didn't obey his orders. Um, and uh, he basically uh, set about finding a new king. And he set his affection on Esther, who was a Jew, but she hid her Jewish identity from the king. Um, and, uh, and she became the apple of the king's eye. Um, and uh, there's a few famous lines in the book of Esther um, that uh, you get from Esther that, you know, she was raised up for such a time as this, um, and that, uh, she's going to go to the king and request certain things. And if she perishes, she perishes. Uh, but what, what, what provokes her to do that is one of the king's right hand man, second in command of the kingdom, um, issues an edict that all the Jews, um, in Persia should be killed, um, because he doesn't like them. And, uh, And so Esther, what she does, because she's got the king's ear and probably more than his ear, if you know what I mean, in terms of just (laughs) being the queen and and having access to him. Um, And I mean, it's really a part of the story, the moral ambiguity of the story and Esther's actions. And we'll get to that in a minute. I don't mean to be crude. Um, And uh, G's laughing here in my right ear. Um, I really don't. Goodness, maybe I shouldn't have said that. but. Gee, you've got me worried now, my friend. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, where was I?
0: <laughs> Something about moral ambiguity.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and so <coughs> you got to read the story, but basically Esther goes and pleads for uh, the people uh, with the king, um, and the king basically uh, listens to her plea um, and uh, and and allows the Jewish people to defend themselves on the day that they're meant to be exterminated uh, by a previous decree that he had given. Um, and so what happens is Esther kind of wins the day. Um, her uncle is elevated, uh, Mordecai is elevated um, to, uh, uh, to glory and prominence in that, in that culture, in that kingdom. Um, but all along the way, what you see, the point of the whole book is God's at work behind the scenes. He's working through Esther, I mean, she is in, you know, the king's sphere, uh, so to speak. Um, he raises her up in the king's eyes. Mordecai, uh, basically gains information that allows him to, um, come upon the king's radar screen as well. Um, but all along the way, the moral ambiguity is there. Um, and that this is an important point to make. In the Old Testament, especially the historical books, you'll see uh, the author recounting history and and actions, but there's no moral commentary. Mm -hmm. And so what you have to do is read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and specifically God's law, um, and you kind of come to understand what God's standards are. And then the history is told basically just as is. It's like news. It's news. And so even in the book of Judges— you get a lot of just straight history, straight news of what happened. Esther's the same way. God's not even mentioned. Esther does a lot of, you know, um, unsavory things. Uh, Mordecai does a lot of unsavory things. There's a lot of drinking and sex and murder in the book of Esther. and there's no moral commentary mm-hmm. on it. Um, and uh, they violate a ton of the Lord's commands as characters. But through it all, God is using evil for good, and um, and even though his name isn't mentioned and even though there's, there's lots of immorality occurring in this book, basically what you see is God's sovereignty rules the day to protect and care for his people, mm-hmm. and so um, that's really the point of the book of Esther, is that even though God's name isn't used, he is not absent, right. and in fact, it's it's a really comforting, encouraging book, and I'm glad it's in the Bible. Um, that, that even though when he seems absent, he's not. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point for us to uh, to take from the book of Esther and and probably a good point for us to end on for the evening, Michael, unless you've got uh, any further comments for the good of the group here.
1: No, I feel like I need to apologize one more time for that comment earlier.
0: <laughs> no, that was, that was good for a laugh. Uh, good for a laugh. Uh, well, folks, we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this episode of TGC Midweek. We'll be back. The week after next, we're going to take the week off for Thanksgiving. Week after that, we'll be back picking up with the New Testament as we continue with our Bible Overview series. Folks, if you've got questions about the Bible, please send those questions in to the email address questions at TrinityGraceSA.org, or you can text those questions anonymously to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin. Until next time, this has been TGC Midweek, and we'll see you later.